0: Hello, let's begin our fourth and final lesson on Ruth Ruth chapter 4 and begin with prayer. Lord God, we come to you and we give thanks for this day that you've made for us to gather here at Center Church. We look forward to gathering, worshiping you and just being with your people. And we ask that you would also be with us this morning as we look at this, this final chapter of Ruth that you would open our eyes and we'd behold wonderful things from your word that would encourage us about you and increase our awe and worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And that's actually one of the goals of today's lesson. It's going to be a little slightly different from the previous three because um, Ruth chapter four not only ends this fun story, it also does a lot of other things. It's going to tie it into... The rest of Scripture. going One of the questions I've had people: and you bring up Ruth to them, they have questions about Ruth. They go, "Why is that in the Bible? I mean, this cute little story about these widows and barley fields and no, Basically, they're nobodies, and frankly, they're not mentioned again outside of Ruth. None of these names—Ruth, Boaz, or Naomi—are mentioned outside of the Book of Ruth, except in genealogies. So they're they're kind of like, well, how, why them? How'd they get in there? And this this chapter will help give us an answer to that. It'll tie Ruth in to the bigger picture. Another thing it'll do, one one of the things I'm going to do differently here is I'm going to show how Ruth, I said early on, I think in the first class, that a famous poet of 100 years ago said this is the most beautiful short story ever put to poem or put to poetry. Which There's beauty to this, to the literature of this story. And what I want to show you is some of that. I'm going to give you a little taste of that as we go through here. And I'll actually start it out that way with just to look at some of the literary beauty of what we've been through so far. Ruth 2 and 3. We went through those the last two weeks. Ruth 2 was Ruth... Meeting Boaz, and then Ruth three as she meets him again, and this time a marriage proposal happens. The first time it was like it was like their first date, and then they get engaged, kind of thing, right? There's there's a whole lot of interesting parallels and similarities between those two, those two, not just Ruth and Boaz, but between the way it's written. There's actually a similar plot line. The plot lines are basically saying something very similar with different different outcomes. I listed some of those there for you on your first page. Just think of it. In both chapters, Ruth starts out at home with Naomi, and she leaves Naomi, and she goes to a place where they're harvesting barley. In both places, Ruth, when she gets there, she encounters Boaz at his place of work. Even in Ruth 3, it's still his place of work. He just went to sleep there. In both plot lines, Boaz responds to Ruth's, Initiative. It was her initiative to go to both of these locations and meet him. He responds with a blessing and a prayer. They're very similar in the way they're worded. And then at the end of this interaction, Ruth departs with a whole bunch of grain. In both, both chapters, right? She comes away with an epa, six gallons in chapter two, and then six measures of something, which is a lot. In chapter 3, she's going home with a lot of grain. And she goes back to Naomi at the end. And Naomi has the final word in each chapter. She makes the the final little statement and kind of closes it out nice. So you can see there's a pattern there. It's like the author was intentionally telling a story. And he was trying to use similar plot line for you to make those connections. And go, wow, that's kind of cool what he did there. He didn't have to tell a story that way. But the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it that way. Other things that are similar between two and three are just the verb, verbiage and the phraseology, the words. You see similar words in both sides, both chapters. I mean, Boaz is described as a relative in the first couple verses of both chapters. He's also called a redeemer in Naomi's statement of 220 when she says he's our relative and a redeemer, and then Ruth invokes that redeemer. Again, when she's meeting with him at the, threshold, at the threshing floor at his feet. So this Redeemer language shows up in both places. becomes a big thing in chapter 3 and bigger in chapter 4, actually, as we'll see. There's a reference to kindness in two prayers. Naomi's prayer in 2.20 and Boaz's statement to Ruth in 3.10. And the, the word for kindness is the same word translated steadfast love elsewhere in Scripture, Chesed. So there's that tie, and those two statements by Naomi and Boaz sound a lot alike. Um, in both places, Boaz commands Ruth to stay near him at different points: stay by the foot of my bed till the morning, or stay here and work till the end of the day and don't leave. There's that um commands to stay near cling to my young women he said in one one of them and the other he said remain and then in both both places there's a request for Ruth to be under the wings of someone very poetic language 2:12 Boaz is saying may you find refuge in the Lord under whose wings you've Seek refuge, or something along those lines, and then Ruth uses the same that same phraseology and says, "Spread your wings over me," when she's basically asking him, "I'm here proposing." So that there's that terminology there; it's an obvious connection. And then at the beginning, you have Boaz described as worthy, and then in chapter three, you have Ruth described by Boaz as worthy as well. So, the common language. And there's also differences, differences between them, contrasts that are meant to be seen. So there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences, obvious ones. One is broad daylight, out in the open, noontime, eating meal with a bunch of people around, and the other one's midnight, darkness, secret, complete opposite. So that's meant to be a contrast, light, open, dark, secret. And... There's a contrast in who's telling whom what to do. Chapter 2, Boaz is commanding Ruth what to do. And as we learned last week, Ruth in chapter 3 is actually telling Boaz what to do in a nice way. He doesn't doesn't come out and command him, but she says, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. And that's basically saying, marry me and redeem me and Naomi. And he says, he goes and he does it, chapter 4 in particular. So there's a contrast in who's who's telling who what to do. And then the final little thing I'll just bring up before we launch into chapter 4 is um, another little literary device that comes up a lot in scripture and they're fun to look for is something they call an inclusio, which if you just want to think of it as a sandwich, that probably makes more sense, but that's inclusio is the official You know, that's the doctrinal statement. But it just means, it's like you got one one statement and another statement at the other end of the story and it kind of sandwiches the whole story together in one nice section. And there's an inclusio, I just mentioned one. There's actually several in Ruth. One between the beginning of two and the end of three where Naomi, chapter 2, verse 2, after Ruth has this plan to go out and find grain, she simply says, "'Go, my daughter,' And in her last statement to Ruth, when she comes back from her midnight encounter with Boaz, wait, my daughter, go, wait. It's, it's a nice little sandwiching of the stories. They go together. Literarily very pretty, very beautiful. And I like to bring those things out because one of the things I would encourage you to do as you look in Scripture is look for the beauty of it. Look for the literary... Awe of what's going on and it's just another way of worshiping god i think god wrote this it's beautiful wow Mm -hmm. and that's why he created us was to worship him so that's just another way to do it is look for the literary beauty of what you see here and we're going to see more of that as we go into ruth four and i'll bring that out because interestingly two and three are connected and similar Well, it turns out chapter 4 is very similar to chapter 1. There's a lot of similar plot line and language and everything going between those two. And I'll bring some of that out as we go through chapter 4. So, let's get into the actual texts. Ruth. Ruth 4. Interestingly, Ruth does not have a speaking part in this scene. Ruth has actually exited stage left right, I don't know which side she exited Mm -hmm. from but she doesn't come back in she's mentioned, she's talked about obliquely but she is not a player in chapter 4 chapter 4 is all about Boaz and Naomi but not Ruth Ruth is out of the picture that's just interesting chapter 4 is Ruth, Ruth has done her work She is no longer needed to move the plot line forward, so to speak. So it's gonna begin with Boaz, who has just encountered Ruth, sent her off with a bunch of grain, and he's eager to do what she basically told him or asked him to do. And he gets up that morning and he immediately goes to the gate Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down chapter 4 verse 1 and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by this is the redeemer that he mentioned to Ruth when she said redeem me basically says there's another redeemer there's another guy who's supposed to do that who's closer than I and I'm going to go find him and here he is verse one he finds the redeemer now it's just interesting that the redeemer just happens by uh, it's, this is a town not a, i mean i'm sure it's not 10 people in the town it's got to have a couple hundred maybe a couple thousand and the redeemer comes by this redeemer comes by and and the word behold is a clue too to look right here that word behold when you see that in the text and it's actually shown up three times in our story already behold means hey pay close attention to what's about to happen look look at this this is a big deal and the the other times those i listed the other times in 2 4 actually referring to boaz when when uh, ruth shows up in the field that happens to belong to boaz behold boaz shows up too so and then the big chapter two plays out and then In the middle of the night when boaz stirs and wakes up and behold there's a woman at his feet so that was pretty important too so the behold is like look here this is important so don't miss that when you see that behold the redeemer of whom boaz had spoken came by i believe that is i mean you look at it go big deal the redeemer came by who cares it's important because it's, it's the author's hint of was this really happenstance or is this God providentially moving in the background making this encounter happen so he shows up a chance happening or providence I would say providence and then Boaz tells him turn aside friend sit down and he turned aside and sat down now that's providential too I mean the man's a busy man probably a businessman and it's like He's on his way to work, and Boaz says, sit down. All right, I'll sit down. I know I was on my way to work, but for you, Boaz, I'll sit down. So there's probably some providence there, too. He has the time to do this. And another interesting thing that I will kind of poke fun at in my notes is the word that's translated friend in your ESVs is actually Um, would probably better be translated so and so nameless dude hey you random dude on the street don't know your name so and so so I'm going to call him so and so going forward just because that will come into play later on so Mr. so and so and Mr. Boaz are sitting down and it just so happens that there's a bunch of elders ten men of elders the elders of the city come and he says sit down and they sit down and they're going to witness basically a legal proceeding, and when he gets, he gathers the quorum. He's got enough people to do it. Boaz immediately launches into, "Why did I? Why are you here sitting down with me? Well, let me present you the case." He says to the redeemer, Mister So and So. It's actually a redeemer in the text, so. That's what the author is calling him. After calling him Mr. So-and-so, he's now just called Redeemer. Random, unknown, named Redeemer. (coughs) Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I'll stop right there and also say the ESV has taken liberty to translate another word in there differently from the original. That word relative. Um, the original actually says brother. Belong to our brother, Elimelech. No, relative isn't wrong. It's just brother has more significance as to what he's about to propose, as we'll see. And if you look at other translations, you'll see that just about every other translation you would read will say brother. Yes, he's kind of unique here in calling him a relative. Our brother, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, buy it back, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, sure, I'll redeem it. I will redeem it. Stop right there. That's a nice little climax when you're reading the story for the first time you're going wait a moment this isn't supposed to be the way it's working out ruth wants boaz naomi wants boaz boaz wants ruth and here's random mr so-and-so saying "Ah, yeah i'll do that i'll redeem it and you go no (laughs) so we'll stop there and hold that that suspense and let's go back and see what's going on here with this redeem thing Little explanation. What is Boaz talking about, the details of it? And he is referring specifically to Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-five, and a paragraph in Leviticus twenty-five that speaks of redeeming the land of um, the poor, basically, who can't afford it anymore. So let me move over to Leviticus twenty-five and read that. because it's important this is what Leviticus 25 I'll actually read 23 Because 23, 24, 25 are all part of this come into play here this is the reason for this redemption 23 says the land shall not be sold in perpetuity forever that's what perpetuity means for the land is mine this is God speaking the land actually belongs to God For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So you may, I may have given it to you as an inheritance, but really you're a sojourner in it. That's key, that's important. The land belongs to God. Verse 24, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Verse 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, nearest redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother had sold. And then it goes on a little more. But that's the key verse. And that's why the word brother is important in that verse too. Our brother Elimelech, they may not be, they probably aren't physical brothers or probably cousins. But he's saying our brother Elimelech, Leviticus 25, 25 says, the nearest up to the brothers, supposed to redeem this land from the poor person who has had has to sell it to live naomi has inherited this land of elimelech it's interesting there's no discussion of where the land comes from there's no people are always looking at this and wondering what about the land why wasn't naomi farming the land it was like it's it's not important to the story (laughs) so he doesn't mention why it's like okay Elimelech had some land it's probably sitting out there fallow maybe somebody else is squatting on it somebody else is using it Naomi may not know she's even out there she was after all the woman of the house at the time didn't know all that Elimelech may have owned but Boaz knows and when Ruth mentioned the redemption in the last chapter all this kicked into play oh yeah if I'm going to redeem Naomi she's got some land out there that needs to be purchased back into the family and either I or the closer Redeemer has to do it. So he's invoking Leviticus 25, 25, and that's why the word brother is important, and also you're the the near Redeemer. So you have a responsibility, according to Leviticus 25, brother, brother so-and-so, to redeem the land. And that's all that Boaz tells him at this point. And Mr. So-and-so goes, okay, I'm supposed to do this, Um, Boaz seems kind of eager about wanting to take it from me I'll redeem it just to spite him is perhaps what's going on in his head I'll redeem it, sure, I'll buy it because after all it's going to cost me some money to buy it but there's a very good chance it'll pay itself back someday and it'll add to my inheritance and it's a good deal I'll do that then Boaz brings up something else Mr. So and So wasn't expecting. Verse three and four. Have to go back to switch around. Verse four. Verse three and four then Boaz said to the redeemer Naomi has come back from the country of Moab who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative our brother Elimelech so I thought, well actually I've already read that skip on past that buy it in the presence, I will redeem it and we move on to verse 5 that's that's the one I meant, verse 5 then Boaz says after Mr. So-and-so says I will redeem it Boaz says the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz just threw in a whole nother angle here. He he takes he he moves from Leviticus 25 to Deuteronomy 25. The Leveret thing which which is actually separate. There are two different scriptures, two different things going on there. But the Leveret thing we talked about last week in more detail, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but a relative is supposed to care for the childless widow of a dead relative. It's supposed to um, actually take her as a wife, and if seed is raised up to the dead, uh, if a firstborn son is born, then that son will basically succeed to the inheritance and in the name of that relative. So Boas throws another angle in here that is gonna make Mr. So-and-so go, ooh, And it's clever. He's being, he's being very clever. He's, he's being a good lawyer. He's, he's stating his case to make, to make his, to, to uh, get an outcome that he's seeking. And the big thing is he brings in, first of all, the leverage thing, and as we discussed last week the person who should actually be leverately married is Naomi Ruth has kind of inserted herself saying marry me as part of a package deal with Naomi because I'm a widow too and I'm sure this is what Mr. So-and-so might be thinking when he hears this Uh uh-oh so I also have a leverate responsibility. Now Naomi, that wouldn't have been so bad, because she can't, she's past childbearing age. But Ruth, she might, she might actually have a kid. And then that kid will get the inheritance and it'll go away from my family, so to speak, my immediate family, into the limulets. Hmm. Plus, plus, the key word. Boaz has not mentioned this up till now. He's never called Ruth a Moabite. Mm-hmm. He puts out the the young word <laughs> Moabite, Moabite, Moabite. That's bad. That's that's a bad word in in Israel. She's a Moabite. So there's like an element of shame. Like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna bring that into my family. She might. Have a kid, and then this inheritance I just invested in is all going to go to him, and i'm going to be besides, oh yeah this this Boaz guy seems rather eager to do this in my stead. I have an out, I have an out. the guy wants to do this, he wants to marry a Moabite and possibly have his inheritance impaired, okay, take it, so Boaz is cleverly put Mr. So-and-so in a position where suddenly it looks better for Mr. So-and-so to say, I will not redeem it. Which is exactly what he does in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair lest I impair my own inheritance. That's his concern. This This is a big risk to what I have this inheritance and if I take this risk I may not keep this inheritance. It may go to this other It may go to Elimelech's line, not mine. And since you've already offered, Mr. Boaz, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So we breathe a sigh of relief. Mr. Lawyer Boaz has won the case. In front of the witnesses, the one man standing in the way has revoked and he does he does something else which is strange. When you read verse seven and eight to seal the deal, this is weird. And it's it's even weird to the people reading this because this is why verse seven probably has to be in there, is because it says, Now this was the custom in former times, he's trying to explain to the readers three or four hundred years afterwards when this was written. This is the way it used to be. I know this is weird, but this is the way it used to be. Concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the author has to make this little statement about drawing off the sandal. And then the Redeemer does that. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, and essentially, uh, the assumption is, gives it to Boaz, but he takes off the sandal. Very strange. But that's kind of like signing your life away, right? Signing your right of redemption away. So that's what's going on. But there's something else that has to be mentioned here because there is, when you get back to Deuteronomy 25 and the Leveret the rules, there was a mention of the sandal coming off in that statement. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, where it says, the brother of the widow, once again, brother of the widow, should take her as wife. But if she refuses, this widow has basically the right, according to Deuteronomy 25, to publicly shame him by taking off his sandal and spitting in his face is what the text says. And saying, he's the one who, sandals removed, like it's a shaming thing. Deuteronomy 25 says that, and it's very curious that you read about sandals coming off here in Ruth 4, and sandals coming off in Deuteronomy 25, and they're very different circumstances. You know, one is a widow shaming the guy who won't do his responsibility, and the other is like an upstanding way to seal the deal. But I think it's intentional. The author wants us to connect the two and think about what's going on here. Make some connections. There's like an illusion here. Okay, so it's upstanding here. Essentially, there's no shame involved in what he's doing in Ruth 4, even though it was a shaming technique in Deuteronomy 25. But maybe the author is making a hint here that we're supposed to think of what this Redeemer is doing as a shameful thing. He's, he's not doing what he should be doing he's giving the shame to someone else the shame of marrying a Moabite not just doing the levered thing but marrying a Moabite and this other person willingly takes it from him and a couple comments about that make that connection that there's something shameful about what just happened Boaz took the shame of the other guy. I think that hints at what Jesus did, taking our shame, number one. I think there's a connection there to the cross. Boaz, like Jesus, Jesus took our shame. Boaz took the shame of marrying a Moabite from this man. And then, But another, not exactly the same thing, is perhaps the reason the author calls him Mr. So-and-so in the first place is that it's ironic that we don't know who he is, and it's also ironic that his inheritance in a sense has been impaired, the very thing he didn't want to happen. We don't know where it went, he's lost to history. So in a sense there's a bit of a shaming of him in that he's lost. He, 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 made, he didn't make the right choice. He's gone. So I think, I think it's fair to make those connections, even though there's a lot of You look at him and go, there's a big difference. But there is a little element of shame there. It was taken by Boaz. And we don't know who he is. So Mr. So-and-so is aptly named. Just a random dude. And there's a tie here to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1? There were two daughters-in-law. They were presented with a choice, and one did the sensible thing and stayed behind, and one took the risk to go ahead with Naomi. You got two redeemers here. One does the sensible thing, preserves his inheritance, or at least what it looks like in the moment, and the other one does the risky thing of marrying a Moabite and possibly impairing his inheritance the same way. I mean, this could be that Ruth will give birth to a guy who will take his inheritance. There's a similar little plot line, if you will, between the two stories. And I guess that gets me all the way down through point four, verses nine and ten. Verses nine and ten. After this sandal removal thing happens, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, basically declares to them, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. That's actually the first time we find out who she was married to. That wasn't mentioned in chapter 1. She's the widow of Malon. The younger of the two, because he's listed second. The widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So he not only redeems, he also does the leveret thing and marries and makes. Ruth, the Moabite, and he mentions her again as the Moabite. I'm taking on Ruth the Moabite as my wife. He does both. And the thing I wanted to make, well, there's the fully taking on of Moabite shame. I've already mentioned that in my notes. But I thought it was interesting that he mentions there may even be more property than he originally led on to. There's the property that belongs to Melon Chileon, perhaps. So he's like he, he left that out when he was mentioning it to Mr. So-and-so. Another little clever lawyer move to get him to what he wanted, which was to renounce and allow him the privilege of taking on the shame of marrying a Moabite. And also, I'll make note of the little this day, he says it twice, Literally, the word there is today, today, today. And that kind of is like an inclusio, a sandwich of what Naomi said at the end of chapter 3, verse 18. What was the last thing she said? Wait, my daughter, till you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And sure enough, Mr. Boaz settled it today today. Nice little sandwich there. This concludes the story, if you will. So now it's party time. Wedding time, if you will. And he says he's taking her as his wife today, so it's, it's like apparently they get married immediately. It's my wife. Today. So now it's wedding time, celebration time, and the people get involved, and they pronounce blessings. Blessings upon the new married couple and this is where this is where it gets big it moves from little boaz ruth naomi to big the whole town is saying this in 11 and 12 then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses and this is a this is a blessing like a prayer as well May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is another name for the territory of Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the lord will give you by this young woman that's quite a pronouncement and it's bringing in a whole lot of new names and characters and taking scope from little bethlehem to all of genesis (laughs) those names are from women in genesis okay rachel leah the house of israel perez tamar judah Those are all talking about what God did in Genesis. So let's take them down here one by one. A list of these different things they're praying for, pronouncing, blessing upon. First they say, may the Lord make Ruth to be essentially a mother in Israel. That's how I would summarize it. Be like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. So they're saying, may she not just be... Not just be your wife, but may she, it's a prayer, may she be a mother in Israel. The mother of something big, way bigger than Rachel and Leah would have known about. Specifically, they're alluding to Rachel and Leah. And if you know the stories, I've got Genesis 29 through 31... And you could actually... There's an indirect allusion to the other two patriarchal wives, Sarah and Rebekah. This was true for all four of these women. They mention Rachel and Leah because they're the mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel. But before them, you've got Sarah giving birth to Isaac, Rebekah giving birth to Jacob, and Esau, but only Jacob was the one who continued on to be part of the chosen ones. Each one of these women left a foreign land none of them were born in Israel they're all from another place they left that land to go with their husbands to go be with their husbands or stay with their husbands depending on the story but they they came from a foreign land they end up founding the 12 tribes of Israel specifically Rachel and Leah Sarah was the Rebecca was the grandmother and Sarah was the great grandmother of the tribes of Israel And another interesting thing that's being alluded to here is every one of the women mentioned endured a period of barrenness. Every one of them. Even Leah. I mean, you think Leah had six. Well, it says there's a point in the story of Leah that God closed her womb for a while. She stopped bearing, and then God opened it again, and she bore two more kids. So even she had a period of barrenness, and we know Rachel did. She was trying to have a baby forever, and it took forever to have Joseph and Benjamin. And Sarah, the most famous barren one of all, giving birth at age 90. And even Rebecca had a period of barrenness. If you read about her marriage to Isaac, it says Isaac had to pray for her, because she was barren. And then she gave birth to twins. So there's allusions here. Ruth is being connected to and compared to these mothers in Israel. next phrase may boaz be worthy and renowned uh, i said boaz because it's may you it's actually masculine in the original so this is more of a prayer for boaz may he may you so it's a masculine you you be worthy and renowned or famous now worthy is the same word that was used to describe him in 2-1 it's the same word it was used he used to describe his now wife ruth in 311 and renowned means May your name be called to mind in future generations, remembered. Which is a slam on Mr. So-and-so. Another slam on him. His name is forgotten. May your name be, not just, may you be remembered. May your name be renowned. The third request. May your house be like the house of Perez. This is not a well-known but he's in Genesis 2 also. Genesis 38, actually. Now, the thing about Perez, well, where did he come from? I'll, I'll get... Genesis 38, he's actually the, the descendant of a levirate relationship. The only other levirate relationship described in Scripture outside of Boaz and Ruth is Judah and Tamar in chapter 38 it's a this is an allusion to that may there be a, le- a blessing on this levered relationship now if you read genesis 38 you will be disgusted Genesis 38 is a sordid yucky story you come away with it going Ugh. because judah judah did it badly he did it the way you're not supposed to do it <clears throat> and there's a contrast Contrast Judah with Boaz. Boaz is doing it the righteous way, and Judah's doing it a sordid way. Judah's character wasn't very good. Notice, um, well, Judah is mentioned. Tamar bore Perez from Judah. She got sons for Judah elaborate way. She did it by posing as a prostitute, essentially. And the whole thing is just yuck when you read it but what happened is God blessed it she was actually called more righteous than Judah because she was because she she found a way to get she was the childless widow who was abandoned and Judah wasn't doing the right thing by giving her to his youngest son so she said well I I need to be cared for and I, I have a way I'm going to figure out how to do this and she ends up securing seed for Judah even though Judah refuses to marry her they never marry but she ends up raising Perez and his twin brother, uh, Zerah. She gives birth to twins. And she becomes a mother in Israel, too, in essence. A shame, shameful one, one from a foreign country, one who went about it the wrong way. But she produced Perez. Now, what's special about Perez? Perez, his descendants go on to be the most numerous among the tribe of Judah, He's actually the most fruitful of all of Judah's sons. And one of his descendants, Nashon, is mentioned several times in Numbers as the chief of Judah, the tribe of Judah. He's actually the, like, the, the head of the entire tribe. So the house of Perez has reached prominence and fruitfulness despite its sort of beginnings. Illusions made, and I think we're supposed to look at that and go, okay. God can take look what He did with Tamar and Perez. Maybe He'll do that with Ruth, the Moabite too. Especially since Ruth, Ruth is far more outstanding and upstanding and more righteous than anything Tamar or Judah ever did. And it it may also be another. uh, John Piper brought this out remember where you came from people of judah you you're sitting here and judging this moabite girl our heritage is no better we come from the same sordid broken relationships shameful past and god made something good out of that don't don't look down on her that's going on too so we get to verse 13 the marriage has happened and verse 13 is big because the Lord shows up that's why it's big Boaz took Ruth she became his wife he went into her and the Lord gave her conception she bore a son it's only the second action attributed to the lord in this entire story only one person could give her a conception a barren woman conception and he did it the only other time he acts in this book is back in chapter one connecting chapter one again to chapter four he gave food to his people after a famine remember only thing, God does two things directly attributed to him in the story. He feeds them and he gives them life, security, a future, and a hope in conception. And everything else God's doing is behind the scenes, providentially working through his people to get what's done, done. But he directly does two things. That's all he's credited with, specifically credited with. Obviously, he's doing way more than that, but he's credited with the two things only God can do, provide food out of famine, provide seed where there was none, conception in a barren woman. And I I didn't put this in the notes, but this also alludes to Genesis, as I've already said, the, the barren women who all God gave conception to at various times. But another interesting thing that ties this story to the patriarchs is every single one of those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were forced to leave their homeland because of a famine. Every one of them. Jacob's being the most famous, because he moved the whole family to Egypt for 400 years, and that was what brought about the exodus. But Abraham went to Egypt because of a famine. Isaac went to the land of the Philistines or what would become the Philistines because of a famine. There's a little paragraph that talks about it. So, why did this story start in the first place? A famine! Ruth 1-1. One, one. A famine sent Naomi. And out comes Ruth and all this blessing. Out of each of those other three famines, God actually blessed those men, ultimately, ultimately. So there's another connection to Genesis, another illusion. All right, and then I want to get to um, 14 through 17. This is actually this is this is. We read this and 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 kind of ignore what it says. But if you listen to this, there's some strange things going on here. Good things, but not what you expect. Then the women said to Naomi, the same women that were in chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1, the women showed up and said, Hey, is this Naomi? Here they are again. So, another connection between 1 and 4. The women are back, and they say things you don't expect. They're good things, but not what you expect. Blessed be the Lord. That's good. It's all credit to the Lord. They're giving all credit to the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Be renowned as they had prayed earlier. Made famous. But notice something weird about this. He's not left you without a redeemer. You say, okay, that's Boaz, right? Boaz redeemed her. Not so quick. Listen. Listen how this redeemer is described. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. really? Boaz is doing that? For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Did you catch that? Your daughter-in-law gave birth to him, the Redeemer. The Redeemer is not Boaz. These women are declaring that the Redeemer is the son born root and Boaz that's a surprise that's not what you would think so the Redeemer is not Boaz it's the child who shall restore her life and nourish her in old age because he's going to grow up and take care of her as she gets older Boaz may be the same age as Naomi and may die before Naomi it's the child who restores her life and nourishes her old age he gives her life. This is a different kind of redeemer. What, what the author's doing here is he's changing the meaning of redeemer, really. Boaz just redeemed per Leviticus 25 land. The child is going to redeem Naomi's life. Redeem and nourish her in her old age. It's going to give her the nourishment, the bread, and the rest that she was praying for in chapter 1. This child is going to bring all that. Permanently provide rest and bread. This is foreshadowing a future redeemer. Who is also a son. A son. Remember we said last chapter 3, Boaz is more like God the Father in the, in, in the way things are going. and Sends his son to redeem Naomi. So this child his son is going to be the redeemer. Really interesting stuff. And And then they say, well, it says Naomi becomes his nurse. So basically, Naomi is raising him as if she's the mother. Ruth isn't mentioned. Like I said, Ruth doesn't come into play. And then they say, a child, a son has been born to Naomi, not Ruth. It's all, this is Naomi's kid. And Naomi's just you can imagine she says nothing, but you can imagine she 's just sitting there with a smile, and you compare to what she where she was in chapter one, empty, angry at God, bitter, and now she 's got everything she ever dreamed of sitting in her lap. This is her the promised redeemer, a representative of her future promised redeemer. So it's very interesting, but there's it's not the, the, and the other thing interesting about this is the women are the one who name him. They name him Obed. The women name him Obed. Not not Ruth. Not Naomi even. The women name him Obed. And Obed means servant. Means servant. You just change the little vowel pronunciation and you insert it into Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, 13, in the Servant psalm, Songs of Isaiah, talking about Christ dying on a cross in Isaiah 52 and 53. The women name him the Servant, foreshadowing the Servant who redeems us. And then it finishes with a genealogy. And you go, oh, that's the boring part. <laughs> but there's cool things about the genealogy, just to connect it with chapter one. This is like another inclusio. How did chapter one begin? A list of genealogical names, sort of. Limelech, Chileon, Maleon. And it ends with a, another list of genealogical names. So there's that <laughs> symmetry going on, that beautiful symmetry but who comes from Obed Jesse and David and if you don't know who David is you're new to the Bible and new to Christianity and new to Judaism and new to religion in general so David comes from this and then he lists curiously the generations of Perez of all people he starts with Perez and he goes all the way to David through Boaz if you count that, there's ten generations listed. And the fact, the very fact that he says now, these are the generations of Perez, that links it to Genesis 2, because in Genesis that phrase comes up ten different times. These are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Noah, these are the generations of Shem, these are the generations of Isaac, the generations of Jacob, generations of Esau, generations of Ishmael. Ten different times, and there's genealogies. So, definitely this is saying this is like a Genesis story another allusion to Genesis which results in David the difference between the generations in Genesis and the generations in this story is generations in Genesis created Israel Israel came from godly people like well you start with Noah but Abraham Isaac Jacob Joseph David didn't come from nowhere. David came from a godly heritage too. And this is why Ruth is in the Bible. One of the reasons. It shows that, Ruth, that a David springs from a godly seed, a godly heritage. He had the character coming down from Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Resulted in him, ultimately. Just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph fathered Moses and Joshua and the children of Israel. So there's, David is not a random dude that came out of nowhere. This was planned by God. The godly heritage was generation by generation by generation to get to David. And I listed another little fun fact there. If you compare the seventh name in the list of this this is Boaz, the seventh one in the First genealogy in chapter 5 of Genesis happens to be Enoch, who is the most important of the 10 generations, all the way to Noah. So you have Boaz like Enoch, and Noah like um, David, actually. I think I said, it. yeah, David is, is like Noah. There's a the, the fact that he took the 10, he's, he picked out 10. And number seven kind of hints at Enoch, the righteous Enoch, and number ten is the one who actually delivered Israel from its enemies, or delivered us from the flood. There's a, con- there's a connection there, too. Yeah. All right, I know it's time to end it, but I just I wrote some concluding statements. I've already defined providence in every single meeting, but I did want to say that here's another neat thing I said the central theological statement of this book is Ruth 2.20 the statement that Naomi shouted when she suddenly saw hope blessed be the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead Ruth 2.20 happens to be the central verse of the book Mm -hmm. the center of the book that's another literary feature the center is where the important thing is read Lamentations The good stuff is in the very center, and all the other stuff is like, yeah, stay away from (laughs) it.
1: Those verses we sing
0: about are in the very center. This is the very center of Ruth, and that's the most important theological verse in the book. And I just made a statement here, I think a lesson we can all learn from this. God providentially guides and rewards the risk taking of his people. That happened in every chapter. The reward is big time in chapter four, it's bigger than they realize. It's David and the coming David whose genealogy also begins and mentions Ruth and Boaz in Matthew chapter 1, the servant, Jesus. But God providentially guided his people and he rewarded them as they took these risks, stepped out in faith and did the weird stuff that Ruth did and Boaz did, chapter by chapter by chapter. They took the risk. They went where common sense would say, don't go. But they knew they were doing the right thing. God was providentially guiding them. And he rewarded them. Their names are now renowned. As we have it in our, in our book here. In the Bible. In the book of Ruth. So. That's the end of my comments. Anybody have a? Joe. I, I don't know if it would be at all interesting to people. But redemption exists today. And it, it still is this if there are two or three creditors on a piece of real estate right. the first in line first priority gets first right of redemption to, to foreclose on. Right. but the second creditor could come and say, "Are you going to foreclose on that Because you're first right but if you're not I'll do it I'll do it. So that can still happen today. No sandals. The no sandals thing <laughs> is gone. Yeah, and, and, and it's called redemption. There's a period of redemption. So the redemption of economic redemption still exists, yeah, yeah. and this other kind of redemption that's alluded to here yeah, also exists. exists. Yeah, none of this is called today. Right, right. I, I will. I'll give a plug for Job. That's coming up next. Job. Job talks about my redeemer Amen. as well. In the, in the redeem my life sense, not the redeem my property sense. So, this concept of redemption went to Job as well, who also is Job and Naomi, as we talked about earlier, are very linked in their stories. Any other comments before I ray it out? All right. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for just looking at Ruth being amazed at what you wrote there for us, for our instruction and for our encouragement, to see that you truly do not forsake us. Your steadfast love does not forsake the living or the dead. Throughout history, your people are in, under the shadow of your wings at all times. Please let that encourage us as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.